I feel like if we want to make a more accessible environment now where I want to get into is how we can make our environments as accessible as our design process. Because it's not just more about the end product. That's great. We can all learn the contrast. We can all learn all of those design tools, but we need more classes in schools so that younger like and even newer designers because they're not necessarily young they might just be starting out can actually learn the basics from the start and implement it into their design work and then i want like agency spaces and design spaces and corporate design spaces to adapt a more accessible and good life balance even just for their designers and i feel like that's where we need to go in order to a combat the technology that you know we're talking about too is and B, just actually be able to get better designs out there from the foundations. We can't do it if we're used to a certain way of working or only one way of doing things. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast about uncovering creative methodologies from people doing inspiring work. In each episode, whether I'm talking to a designer, an educator, or an entrepreneur, we learn the hows and whys behind what they do through experiences and determination. My guests explore the techniques and inspiration that have helped them navigate their creative careers. I'm your host, designer and educator, George Garasegui Jr. Join me as I continue to elevate the creative process by shifting the focus to how we work over what we produce. On today's episode, I want to welcome Jessica Odie. Jessica has a deep love for design. Her espresso-fueled craft is combined with an underlying passion for disabled spaces, and she's now specializing in accessibility and representation for everyone. Based in Canada, Jess collaborates to empower communities and has had the privilege of working alongside incredible groups across the globe. Jessica has been freelancing for over 10 years, carving out her own work environment, and has brought opportunities, challenges, and perspectives. But most of all, meaningful connections with beautiful community spaces. Without obsessing over typefaces, Jess gets involved with his disability-focused campaigns, from the disabled life with her sister to intimately disabled with dear friends, as well as volunteering in design spaces. She's in the dream phase of Access Design Collective in hopes that we can all learn from disabled creatives one interview at a time. Hey, Jess, or is it Jessica? You know what? I am good with either. Like, I'm in Jess, Jesse, Jessica. It's all good. Jody, even. Some people love that one. <laughs> Ooh, I can just, like, you know, go back and forth a bunch of different yes. versions. <laughs> Thank you so much for the flexibility and timing. And I'm happy to so far, I'm happy to finally get you on the Works and Process podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm like honored. I've seen past guests you've interviewed, like Ritesh and Jen White Johnson. And I'm just like, Murray's cherry. And I'm like, and I'm here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think really, it's just all these interesting people that we all happen to honestly be connected with in some shape or form. And I've known some of those people doing a lot of similar things, and then just being inspired by what they do and how they advocate for what they're about. And I think that's one of the things that I want to talk to you more about. Amazing. I'm an open book. Let's do this. Let's do this, right? So I really want to get into your, you know, your journey about being disability first. Before we do that, let's do something to clear your mind. I start every episode with a fun icebreaker. Are you ready? Ready. Analog or digital? Digital. Espresso or cappuccino? Cappuccino. (laughs) Typography or websites? Ooh, websites. Consulting or designing? Ooh, that's a tough one because I'm tired today. So I'm going to go with designing still. (laughs) (laughs) 
The Disabled Life or Access Design Collective? Ooh, I got to give that one to The Disabled Life. I got to. <laughs> yeah. so only because I've shelved until I can have energy for Access Design Collective. So that's my future dream. <laughs> <laughs> so a quick word association, right? The first thing you think of when you hear these words. Creativity. Disability. Determination. Family, which is weird. I don't know why that one came up. (laughs) (laughs) Business. Self-employed. Failure. Learning opportunities. Community. Bad, I think of disability right away, but I also think of family. Education. Exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Mistakes. Happy accidents. That's Bob Ross. (laughs) Yes, Bob Ross, the legendary. Skills. Experience. History. Ooh. Oh my gosh. I did like literally drew a blank on that one. History, I'd say honoring our past. Opportunity. Rest. (laughs) Accessibility. Oh. Required. (laughs) Future. Disabled. The future is disabled. I've heard uh, Alice Wong say that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And last but not least, process. Ooh adaptive. Thank you. Thank you. I just like <laughs> doing this. It kind of like just throws us off our game. I, there's always one where you're like, what? oh my God, my mind just went blank. Right. And I love that was history. I'm just like, uh, I was never good at that class except for remembering dates. <laughs> Glad I didn't say math. Oh my gosh. No, I love math. I will totally nerd out on math. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed you use identity as first language, right? And I want to language that a little bit here. And before we start the convo, what does identity first language mean? And why was it important for you to specify? Identity first language is basically when disabled people or people with disabilities, right, would use disabled first. So like, I'm a disabled person versus I'm a person with a disability. Now, for me, language is super subjective. So many people have their preferences. I know many people in the community that don't even want to use the word disability, which is totally fine. Right. Um, So I think of it as a relationship for me, my disability is something that I have a very close relationship to, whether I love it, whether I hate it, whether maybe we have a fight or maybe we get back together afterwards and make up. So for me, it's such a like integral part of who I am and helped shape who I am that I'm very proud of that. So identity first language is a way for me to A, express my pride, and B, kind of force people to reconsider or rethink what they think of when they say the word disabled or disability, you know? Is that a universal feeling or that's something that is not always thought about the same way? Definitely subjective, not always the same way. I mean, disability covers one of like the widest ranges. We have so many other identities within being disabled. You know, you also attaches all other like ethnicities, sexual orientations, age. So, you know, a lot of people say ability is temporary and eventually we all become, you know, we all age, we atrophy, we, it's, it's a very common experience yet it comes in so many different ways. Some people acquire their disability over time. Some people are born with their disability like I was. So it's a completely different life and I think experience. And so I don't think we have really one communal way to do it. I mean, overall, we're trying to use the word disability and disabled more, you know, so that non-disabled people can 
really start to honor us rather than think of it as some like weird social construct mm-hmm. <laughs> or some weird, like, you know, stereotype. So yeah, I think it's deeply personal. I don't, uh, I think it really depends on each person's relationship with their own disability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's good to know. I think that's, you know, the idea of just like kind of the reframing and the idea of putting the disability up front and allowing people to think about that because you sometimes can't separate <laughs> the person from the disability. And, you know, nor do people want to. And I think you made a great distinction if that's something that you want to project versus some people who don't want to project that, right? So it's just good to know, right? And thinking about how we address that, because sometimes people may feel it's insensitive to do it one way or the other. Absolutely. Even when I'm in conversations with people, I tend to use person first language just to kind of encompass more perspectives. Meanwhile, me, I'll just say disabled this, disabled that, (laughs) you know, left and right. So I have to be conscious of it myself as well. Yeah, I know. It's something you don't even think about until honestly is brought to your consciousness. And then it's kind of like, which one do I do? (laughs) Do I do, (laughs) you know, like you said, person first or identity first. And and just wanted to make sure that, you know, as we start to use possibly this language, you know, throughout the episode, people understand why we're doing it you know, this way, because that's your personal preference. And that's how you want to be identified. So awesome. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for honoring my point of view on that. I love that. Oh, yeah. My podcast is always highlighting the individual who, who I'm lucky enough to be interviewing on my show. So I'm going to honor whatever way they want to be discussed. So thank you for just having that for something to to have this conversation. So we discussed on that. And I kind of want to give my listeners a little bit more of a glimpse into how you were introduced into art and design. So I call this section the origin story. So where'd you grow up and were you creative as a kid? Yes. So um, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, still there. I am basically a copycat because, you know, my older sister was very creative. My mom's very creative. So I just like did whatever Leanna did. It was like, oh, Leanna's drawing. I'm drawing too. Our brother, Poor guy. He's the oldest, but he can't draw. Uh, He's good at other stuff though. (laughs) So I've always kind of been creative and I mean, honestly, even disability and art wise, right. You kind of just have to like be creative and come up with new things. We literally call my mom a guyver and, you know, my dad would always be like the engineer technical trying to figure it out. My mom would always be the, well, I'm going to, you know, put a wooden spoon on the back of your chair and that's your headrest until we could fix it. You know? So I always love to draw and do that kind of thing. In school, I was always either like, oh, you know, the kid in the wheelchair or, oh, that's the artist. That's the girl that draws. And they would always ask me to like do all their covers and stuff for their reports. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, as I got older and into high school, just physically doing like illustration and, and paintings just became a little more exhausting. And that was the wonderful time era where uh, the Wacom tablet was being introduced and it was like digital world starting for the first time. So I had to learn how to draw all over again on a digital platform. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I can see that being a totally, you know, not necessarily in your mind, but a physicality thing to do something very totally different. So I don't consider, you know, you being a copycat just because you, you followed your mother or your sister. But I kind of feel that's kind of in the blood, right? The creativity just kind of runs in throughout the family. But who, if any, was your biggest supporter of your creative career? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'd have to give it up to my family and like extended and the core five of us because they always 
wanted us to draw things for them. I'd be drawing up tattoos for cousins. I'd be, even though now I'm like, don't do that because let the tattoo artists do their work, please. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like my family was always the biggest supporter of it. They, um, mom kept all of our art all the time. Dad put all of our artwork up in his office back in the day. I swear people thought he still had kids when he was older because he just never took down our art as kids. We're like, dad, we're adults. This is weird. (laughs) That's great. It's great to have such a impactful family group to kind of keep on. Sometimes people don't have that support and it's good to, you know, sometimes to allow us, the creatives, to, to know that somebody else is is watching. And even if they don't get it, they're just supportive. Yes, exactly. Like, I would not say my dad or brother would always understand. They'd be like, function over thing. Like, who cares how it looks as long as it works? And we're like, no. So we'd have debates all the time over like, oh, that person's logo, especially since they're in construction. So I'd always be like, that person's logo is garbage. And they're like, what are you talking about? Who cares? I'm like, come on. And yeah. That would be a, a lovely, right? Like the construction versus design, like the function of of that. I can see the arguments going long and, and deep for, you know, many days. Yes, we love a good debate in this house. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first creative job and how did you stumble into it? Ooh, okay. Well, it's hard to say, right? Because I kind of... In high school, I would always do the art posters for my volunteering hours. Like you had to get it a certain amount of hours. So we'd be like, could we just paint like, you know, the play posters and stuff? And we had to fight for that because a lot of people were like, no, you have to go to, you know, an office or do this. And we were like, well, you know, I'm not gonna ask my mom to drive me after school to this office every day. Like, you know, so anyway, after some fight in there, they let us do that. And then after college, I kind of just jumped right into freelancing. So my first work was always like either family friends or recommendations from people back and forth and word of mouth. And I just started doing like random design things like from audiobook companies, because maybe a friend or a family member knew I was creative pharmaceutical pamphlets in Alberta. I was like, cause like I had a friend <laughs> from high school move out to Alberta and I was like, okay. So it was just the random odd job here and there. Right. So it, it seems like being recognized as that's the girl who draws, <laughs> then still got you jobs. That's so that's kind of awesome. Definitely helps, <laughs> and it always helps that everyone always remembers me because it's like such easy identifier for the wheelchair. So they'd always be like, "Oh yeah, Jess, like we went to kindergarten together," and I'd be like, "Oh, I do not remember. I had to fake that a lot." I'd be like, "Yeah, like, of totally. course we did. Yeah, I remember that." <laughs> yeah, that's always great. When did you first consider yourself? a creative? Ooh, I would definitely have to say probably like a year into freelancing. That first year, I did not feel like, you know, when we're all stumbling around trying to figure out like, is this what I'm doing? Is this a job? Or am I just like, is this a hobby? Like, I don't really, I don't really know how to identify that. But as soon as I started getting um, more local work, like I, now I've been doing ongoing branding work for ENA Electronics. And actually the original designer was my educational assistant's husband, who was a graphic designer. And we both worked on this rebrand together. And it was so cool to see, because he'd be like almost 
he almost like mentored Smalley in that little project where he wanted to see what I came up with and where I went with it. And I had no idea. So I was just, you know, going to town. And then it ends up being that we came up with the exact same logo idea for this rebrand. And he was like, so proud. And we like love the family. So I was just like, that's when I really felt like, okay, I got this. I can do like a, a brand guide and do all this stuff and feel professional. Uh, meanwhile, I look back at the brand guide now and I laugh. I'm like, oh, that is not how I do brand guides anymore. Your first big thing is always very different than what you know now. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. I look at some of the old stuff and I'm like, oh, that was good. But then I'm like, this is horrible. What were you <laughs> thinking? I can't believe you even thought that was quality work. Well, it got that, us here though, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. And so, you know, I, I love doing this kind of like quick, deep dive, right? It helps everybody kind of learn a little bit more about you, but in a more condensed and concise way, because I really want to get into some of the deeper things, you know, and conversations we want to go into. And I think we run in the same social media circles, right? I think I've seen you participate in virtual conferences such as the AIGA, where all the black designers, Ally and Allyship, right? And even when I look at the work that previous guest Jen White Johnson does in diversity, she shared a lot of your posts and things like that. So you've been on my radar and, and the way you you talk about accessibility, right? And I love that this podcast allows me to give me the opportunity to meet a lot of new people, but also hear about their processes, right? So design is so multifaceted, right? And accessibility, like diversity, has been a hot topic in design. I mean, this will probably be the whole entire podcast, but can you tell me what does accessible design mean? First of all, I'm just going to fangirl for a second because I'm sorry, Jen White Johnson shared my posts. And you're right. And I love how you said that it's been like a hot topic or a hot issue because I made a joke about that with a, a designer friend a while back, like me doing accessibility work all the time just because I'm trying to make like my community members get to be involved and actually get to see the stuff that I'm making. And then you see it like trending now all of a sudden and you're like, oh, I didn't realize this was a trend. Like, So for me, I think accessible design and accessibility is just, it's the foundation of everything we do. Like good design aligns with accessible design. And it's always been for me at the very base, a human right. Like I'm doing this because as much as we talk about physical world disability, like an accessibility, you know, if people saw that a building didn't have a ramp, they would lose their minds, right? We'd all lose our shit. Like, no, it's 2023. How do you not have a ramp in this building? Yet digital accessibility, nobody considers it. And we're making so much of our content not accessible for a big chunk of the population. I think one in four people in the globe have or identify as having a disability. They can't access your website or your branding because it's not accessible for them. So for me, accessible design is just, it's like the start. It's like everyone should be doing this as the start and then exploring through, you know? But you mentioned, right? Like a huge chunk of the population is missing out. But what type of accessibility, even on a website, are we looking to understand, right? Because obviously, people who currently don't identify as disabled may not be noticing any of the discrepancies that you, who are, notice every day. What does that accessibility look like? Or inaccessibility, really? There's so much. I like to call it beginners versus like then the art and complexity of color contrast. That's a whole podcast in itself. 
So we're talking about font size. We're talking about color contrast. We're talking about the way the website's built even like, and it's so funny because back in the day when I was learning like HTML in high school, just for the fun of it, you realize a lot of accessibility in web design specifically, is just good coding. It's good writing, but a lot of people now we jump into the web design world and it's all templates. It's all, you know, you don't even have to do a single line of coding anymore. And a lot of that is actually getting in the way of accessible websites and accessible design and websites, because people who use assistive technologies like screen readers or talk to text functions on their phone or on their computer, if there's a problem within the code or there's a problem within the frameworks of your website, then their assistive technology isn't going to be able to read things to them or like alternative text, uh, making sure you have your headers, your sections, your footer tags and making sure all that. But most people I even talk to in web design don't even know that exists. They just do whatever looks pretty on Squarespace, you know, or, or mm-hmm. something. Meanwhile, Squarespace's foundations in itself has so many bugs or so many things that I have to go in and fix with coding just to like make it accessible or make sure there's like a focus state on their buttons even. Like that's how small of a detail it could be. Right. And I've seen some of those options, right? Sometimes the websites you notice have this ability to include that. But then there's also this little little funny hovering guy that can change the accessibility options of it, but it almost seems like a skin. It's not embedded in it. So it almost seems like it's an afterthought. Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that is like the biggest hot button issue. Like there are lawsuits that go on with that. And there are all these overlay companies that are trying to like appeal to non-disabled people by being like, oh, you don't want to not be compliant. Put this little widget in and all of a sudden you'll be compliant. And as Aubrey Lee says, compliancy is complacency. And you look at these things, these overlays, and they actually cause so much issues for people with assistive technology. Because visually speaking, right, for sighted users or for people who, you know, they might look at it and be like, this is so cool. You can change the font size. You could do this. But what a lot of people don't know is that, A, your browser in general can do that. Anyone can zoom in with text with Chrome or Safari. So a lot of these fancy widgets and things actually add in so much code and really mess up with some screen reader users. So they fight against it all the time. And I used to use it back in the day too, because I was even excited. I'm a sighted user. I don't know shit about assistive tech sometimes because I use the talk to text on my mobile, but I really don't use any like voiceover or things like that on my desktop. So I was even, and then a few colleagues were talking to me about it. We were talking about it in some Facebook groups and I immediately took them down from all my sites. I was like, thank you for this. Like we should build from the floor up, not add in this little widget afterwards that will actually mess up for half the people that are trying to access the site. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've noticed that. And I've I've noticed and I've heard that that comment of like, that is lazy accessibility design, <laughs> right? Where it's it's such a, the intention is the the idea of helping. And like you said, it, it maybe helps and supports people who have visual disabilities, maybe because you can do these things, but it doesn't take into account all the things. I mean, as we'll get into it, I think that's a very difficult thing <laughs> to do. It's an art. I do say it, it is an art. But the funny thing is, is for me, I find people are far more concerned with perfection over process. Whereas if you just do one thing to change, just start with the basics of 
little more contrast to your post or a larger font size as your base. You know, a lot of designers love that nine point font scale. And it's like, it's so tiny. No one can read that. So those little things are going to make a huge impact. So even if you're not going to be at, let's say, you know, maybe my level or maybe the community level of we've been doing this our whole lives just because we had to, you can still do something. It just doesn't have to be all or nothing. Everything counts. Right. Right. And I think, I think even just bringing up the idea that Squarespace, you have to go back in and, and do so much work. It almost seems like those themes could, like you said, on the base level, have a function that you can choose to turn off, but it's embedded first versus choose to turn on, right? Exactly. Um, I think that would definitely allow us to to consider that more often because probably most of us are like, I, I don't even notice it, right? Because maybe mm-hmm. people do, are not, you know, people who are visually impaired, I mean, who can actually visualize and see stuff, stuff like that. It doesn't bother them because it's not something they deal with. But I think part of the thing is to realize that the stuff that we create and design is not only for, pe- for people like us, it's for everybody else. <laughs> and so, you know, depending on who we're designing for, we need to hopefully include them to just have access to the same tools that we tend to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like, I don't know, not to generalize, but non-disabled people love to like, when they discover a thing that like we've already been doing for accessibility, it's always hilarious. I love watching the reaction, you know, like even pandemic talk, right. The fact that more people now are pushing for like working from home and, and they're like, this is great. I can have a work-life balance. I can do this. Or like, I love remote work. Meanwhile, like I have colleagues who were like rejected left and right for years because they couldn't work from home. I didn't even go into a design agency because I couldn't work from home. You know, I had to start my own business. I had to do this. So there's that like, and I'm always conscious of it because I know it can also be a chip on my shoulder. So I also need to be conscious and be open and warm hearted to people who are really genuinely passionate and interested. I've met some really cool non-disabled allies who like want to get this done. Like Tiffany Stewart. Oh my God. She's my favorite. We chat about like the inaccessibility of things all the time, but it's just funny sometimes, you know, you're like, now you're seeing all of these accessibility things are like, this is easier to read. Or I love closed captions because, you know, now I don't have to have my phone audio on. I could just read it. And it's like, well, yeah. And that also helps deaf people, you know, <laughs> welcome to the club. Like, <laughs> I know, I know sometimes you, it, in 2017, I was at an AIGA conference. I think it was in Minnesota and Elise Roy was there, deaf designer. She's also, I think, on the board of AIGA. And she was doing her talk and just basically being like, like you're talking about, right? The idea of accessibility being everywhere and how the keyboard, the normal thing that we know was designed for disabled people so they can be able to talk, you know, if they couldn't. I don't think anybody can think about a computer without a keyboard. (laughs) Right. It's so true. And like so many things were built from those spaces, like even infomercials, people joke all the time. Oh, infomercials are, you know, selling products for lazy people. And it's like, A, the word lazy. I'm lazy. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I want that shoehorn. I want that orange juice tipping machine thingy. Like that is great. And it's cheaper because the more you all buy it for us, the more the price goes down so that we can buy it on the cheap. So it's like, yeah, you know, so many things and everything, like everyone has access needs, I think is one of the biggest takeaways that people don't understand. Technically speaking, you need public washrooms or else that's an access need. I can't use your public washrooms, but you know, if I could, that'd be great. (laughs) So everyone has, I think 
what their own needs to make themselves function and feel good and rest in community. And so do we just have a little bit more, or maybe we've had them a little bit longer, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we can probably dig into some of that because I think, you know, there's so many things that not that we ignore, it's just that we're just not aware of because it doesn't hit us the same way. I think the fact that we need to have more people that it hits us in different ways to understand the complexity of the things that we do and how these little decisions can ripple in big ways. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, most people growing up, even my sister and I, and maybe a few other people were the only like physically disabled people they knew, you know, like, so a lot of times I'm also realizing that, you know, as soon as I slide out of my little disability bubble and community, I'm like, Oh, that's right. Some people haven't even like met someone with a disability before, you know, like it's just wild to me. And you have to, like, I have to remember that too, that like, yeah, I have to sometimes like speak about it, like as if no one has any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I think that that's part of the, some of the things of like the more interaction and obviously disability or race or things all have that same kind of complexity where if if you're in your own little bubbles and then you're experiencing this thing, you're like, oh shit, I haven't actually experienced as much as I thought I have just because I watch TV or I see it online or I think I'm an an advocate or an ally. But then when I go outside, I'm like, oh, I have no idea how to talk to X, Y, Z. I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's very telling how sometimes that type of information goes by the wayside because it's just not something that we're so used to dealing with on a day-to-day. Absolutely. And I think it really comes down to, I think once we drop that fear of like, oh, am I a good ally? Am I doing this right? And actually just do the work. I think it makes a huge difference, right? Like, because there are so many subsections of disability. I will never understand an autistic perspective or what it's like for someone who's deafblind or like all these different, like I have a bit of depression as well. So I have that spectrum, but like, I'm, I'm not in the neurodivergent world. So it's like, I can't go in. And then we have overlaps and complexities on top of that, because there are black disabled people, there are queer disabled people Mm -hmm. out there. And I, and I think the more we realize I'm not going to understand your experience, but I'm going to open up and listen and validate your experience. I think that's what makes that better process. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that also just reminds me of a design process, right? The willingness to be wrong or the willingness to fail more often is the same Mm -hmm. thing, the willingness to, you know what, I am going to fuck up along the way. And I'm going to apologize for it. I'm going to say I said the wrong word. And I'll, you know, do it in real time. And hopefully, everything will be okay, just because versus never addressing it, never touching on it, never figuring out the right way to address people. (laughs) You know, that's the worst (laughs) thing that you can do. Absolutely. We just have to, you know, and we do as designers, right? We we're that classic, what you got to grow thick skin and take criticism because every day your client is not going to pick your favorite option. We all know your client's going to pick the one you hated the most. So, you know, it happens. So same thing, right? We've got to build that tolerance so that we can do the work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> no, right. They will always pick the worst. I don't understand what kind of water they drink, but they always pick the worst <laughs> thing Right. The old school process was give you, you know, give you two that you liked, one that you didn't, and then 
the client learned to always pick the shitty ones. So I don't, I don't <laughs> understand how that ever happened, but it became a thing. So now you do, you can't show them that anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Now you just start with your best work, what one you like the most. And then, then they ask for the revisions and you're like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now we're getting into client work, right? So look, digging into the stuff that you've done, we found this amazing thing you've collaborated on with Yahoo, right? The artwork for the Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Can you talk a little bit more about the project in general and how you were contacted? Okay. So first of all, completely wild. Every opportunity I've had, and I always say this, has been either because a disabled person recommended me or we chatted on some random group somewhere else. And like, you know, it's like planting those seeds, right? Like a lot of the connections I've been trying to make have nothing to do with, oh, I want to do this so I can build my career. It's more like, oh my God, you're so cool. I love what you do there. Let's talk about it more. And I've been really honored and blessed that that's come back to me through the years because like, I am pretty sure that Yahoo message was just randomly because I don't know <laughs> if it was the disabled life or one of my past illustrations for maybe access now, one of those ones that I was doing, or even XES products where I was literally drawing disability figures for accessible sex products, which was hilarious because I'm like, now Yahoo's messaging me because they saw my like disabled person swinging on a swing with dildos around them. So that was hilarious, but you know, and I'm like, then they message me out of the blue. Like we love your work and we, we love the way you like try to incorporate the whole spectrum of people in your work. So let's, you know, let's do something. And they were so cool because they really just let me go with it. Like, like there were no parameters beyond, Oh, here's our palette a little bit, but like have fun with it. I actually had to sit back and think before I said yes, because one thing I always have to be conscious of, especially as a white disabled woman is, is this for me? can someone else represent my community better? Can someone else do this better? And then at the same time, the whole fact that Yahoo was even thinking of hiring someone for Global Accessibility Awareness Day with a disability was huge in itself. So I really went back and forth because it was a huge, I didn't want to take the responsibility lightly of like, how am I going to represent an entire community in one little square? And I have to say my process through it all was just always based off people I knew and loved already. I like know so many people with severe scoliosis or who use a wheelchair, a lot of queer disabled people who identify as non-binary and just using that as my inspiration to just create the love that I feel when I think about the word disability or the word community. And I tried, you know, and I even like I sent, I sent it to a few people. I probably shouldn't have sent it to because I don't think I was allowed to do that, but I did it. And, you know, now that it's over, I could say that just to like, be like, okay, I'm on the right path. Is there something I forgot? Is there someone I left out? Cause that's, would be my biggest fear as a disabled designer. Like, did I leave someone out? You know? Right. Right. And then, I mean, looking at some of the, you know, doing the research, I mean, we have obviously the, on Yahoo, they have the article and it seems like it's kind of this one splash image, but I can't find more. And I know there is more like what other little aspects, assets were you able to create? You know, was it just that specific like piece for an article or was it a larger thing? Yeah. So that piece in itself was just used. I know they can also use it internally. So that'll probably go on, you know, whenever they're talking about global accessibility awareness day, but it was actually on like the whole search page that day as well. So like when anyone like searched disability or accessibility was like on all of their banners to advertise for global accessibility awareness day. So that was 
wild. I was like, wow. Oh my gosh. My artwork was up there for like a whole day and people got to see it. And then you could click it and read more about like the article and stuff. So that was actually a one-off piece that I did in vector format so that they could either add a title to it or just use it as is, or if they had to put another background color towards it for a different banner, you know, then they could play with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I can definitely understand the idea of like, oh my God, this global company is using something (laughs) and it's on all of their stuff on this day. Like how many eyeballs are on that? You know, I love the fact that you're talking about the inspiration for those are, are people that you know, and all the different intersectionalities of all that queer disability, different race disabilities, things like that, non-binary. I think when you look at the the image, it includes so much of that. And, and I really want to know this style, right? This very heavy vector, very flat, but very clearly you understand everything that's going on. Is this something you're normally used to? Because when you look at some of the other sketches and illustrations on the Disabled Life, the old archive blog, it seems to be more traditionally kind of sketch, comic, panel-like. So was this a departure for you or just kind of something you were trying to do because of what they allowed you to do? Well, the funny part is, is I actually got into the more vector versions of it for (laughs) easeability. Because traditional art is like so much more physical work. Not that Vector wasn't, because I still have to go through the sketches and do stages like that. Like I'm a, I'm an illustrator. Like I have a traditional art background in that sense where I sketch first all the time, even though I digitally sketch, I still have to. So I still sketched it all out like a comic strip and then went back in to Vector it later, which I know most designers are probably like, why wouldn't you just build in Vector? And I'm like, that'll work that way. Photoshop has to be first. (laughs) So... (laughs) For me, I was just, I think I was used to doing that style for a few other clients as well, like Access Now, the XES, and the first big project I ever did for Wells Fargo for National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So for me, it was just, you know, scale and and to have to be able to like, I could create smaller. So, you know, my computer wouldn't crash at the time. <laughs> so even just resolution-based, it was so much easier to work in that vector format. And I love it. I love experimenting with different styles. Like one day I'll paint a Bob Ross painting and the next day I'll go in and do like the most minimalistic thing ever just because I get bored and I like to explore new styles and not not do the same thing over and over again. I actually get bored doing that a lot. So I need to change it up. (laughs) But are you getting bored with like just the style you're working on at every given time or bored with the output you're putting out for clients or is it kind of one and the same? One and the same. I just feel like we kind of joke that I'm my mother's daughter because she's the Jacqueline of all trades. We joke. But uh, so like I just once I've done something like if I've worked on a website, let's say for like a big project for a while, I was doing it for like, let's say two months. And then I'm like, I'm over it. I don't want to code again. Now I want to go draw or now I want to go do a logo or I want to do something different or meet a new challenge to or a new problem to solve. Right. So I think it just comes from that or if I'm bored or what mood I'm in. What music I'm listening to. (laughs) I definitely can see that happening. With that piece, and we notice, and even when I follow you on social, and even, you know, the certain things, with most of the stuff that you create, you always have captions and descriptions that go along with your visuals. Two-part question. One, how do you decide on the wording for those specifically? And is this an accessibility of practice we all should adopt? All right. So number one, uh, that evolved over years. If you 
ever, I think it's because I wiped out my social feed way back when I rebranded so that it would all look aesthetically because I was very particular about my feed. <laughs> so if you look at like, go back to my first image description I ever wrote, it's garbage. It's just like, yep, person sitting there doing the thing. But as like, you know, we know writing is a practice as design is a practice, image descriptions became a practice. So as I wrote more, I got more confident in the way I was describing things and because we're artists, I also feel like we kind of have to describe the vibe as well, not just what it is. So for me, it's just if I'm, I use identity first language, I read a big controversial one was even in the, in the Yahoo one, one of the people is plus size. So I wrote fat disabled person, because I know a lot of people in that community who are like, fat is not a bad word. Fat is not an ugly word. Why are we not saying this? Like the more you're scared of it, the more fat phobic we're going to be, you know? So I did. And obviously they had to change it because (laughs) they're a big company. They don't get that luxury of like being an independent and getting to put your foot down on that thing sometimes. So they changed it to just like, you know, a plus size person or using it as that to be a little quote safer. So for me, I just try to be mindful of the language that the people around me use too. And the people I follow and connect with. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I'm reading the description just kind of as we're talking about it right now to see how they changed it. Um, <laughs> but it, it is interesting, you know, because in in the visual, and I'll add this to my website with the show notes so people can see it. Right, you're talking about you know nine people that you've designed in various things from you know nine bi- binary to gay to like you said plus size to somebody wearing a hijab, right? To somebody in a in a wheelchair, right? So somebody with a prosthetic, it looks like, right? So there's all Mm -hmm. these different things. You're trying to address so many different layers in this. Even somebody, I think, with like alopecia, it looks like, you know, to, you know, to to even say that skin color is not even a a given in the way that it, it, it's differential. So it it is very interesting, right? And I, I love how you say writing is a practice, designing is a practice, right? And how all these things come together. So it, it allows us to kind of really understand and, and be mindful, once again, that the fact that like, it's going to evolve over time. And I think Absolutely. I've noticed Jen White Johnson do this a little more in her post when she's been posting some of her stuff. And, and what it really means is, you know, since we're so visual people, we allow the visual nature of the image to tell us all the things that we're not really saying. And um, so the listeners understand when you're adding a caption or the description to an image, it's allowing somebody who maybe can't honestly see the image to just read the description and still have the same visual picture of what this image is supposed to be like. And Jess does a really good job to making sure she's identifying it looks like gender fluidity, different types of races, right? To ethnicities, to even types of illnesses or things like that to help identify with this, which things that we would normally, if you're able to see, you can notice all of these little things with your eyes, but somebody who cannot rely on their eyes to do that type of same type of seeing needs to read this stuff. So just in case our listeners don't understand what it is to have image descriptions besides just a caption of like what the image is supposed to convey versus no, no, I need to actually describe the whole entire image for somebody else. Brilliant. Oh, look at you. You are, you did your research. I love it. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a very good accessibility practice because the thing is actually, I'm going to be doing a post probably in a month now, cause I'm tired. I was actually gathering information on Instagram for Instagram stories and how screen readers 
if they read out the text or if it reads out the things. So where I learned to put image descriptions in my post rather than just the alt text. So like my alt text, which is in like the settings of, you know, when you do an Instagram post, let's say you could go down to the very bottom, click more options, click accessibility, click alt text, whatever. It's, it's, it's a convoluted process. So that I actually go very basic because for me, if the image descriptions in the caption then it can also appeal to more disabilities than just visual. Like I learned this from higher priestess on Instagram where some screen readers don't even read the alt text just because of the way the social media platform is built, let's say. So some of the legacy devices just don't catch up and don't read it. But then also I was thinking, well, sometimes there are always different types of learners, right? We learn this in school. There's tactile learners, there's visual learners, and there's audio learners, So for me, by adding an image description in the caption, I'm covering all my bases. So if someone doesn't like to look, they like to, they'd rather read, they can read the description and understand something they might miss. Like even if they have maybe a cognitive disability or a processing disorder or something. So yeah, it's always like for me, you got to cover all three of those bases and you're basically going to cover the most majority of people. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of work though, right? That's not not simple, right? right? I mean, meaning like, I know, I'm not trying to say that we're not going to adopt this, but it does seem like a lot of extra layers on top of just sharing a post, (laughs) you know, sharing a a thing, you know, doing a video and, and putting it up there. Now it's like, there's a more methodical thought process going into everything, right? Because the intention is you just want to get the information out there. The impact of the intention means you have to make sure, like you said, I want to hit the widest available audience I can. Yes, exactly. And to me, it goes against the whole, you know, that we're doomed with the algorithm or we have to post, we have to market. And that's one of the things, you know, we've got to post right now. And for me, it's like, well, if it's not accessible, I'm not posting it. And I get that also a privilege because sometimes we don't have that opportunity. Sometimes we do have to share it quick. Sometimes it's like an emergency. So if you're posting like a really important thing. So I've even offered to volunteer and write the captions for people in their posts if they don't have the time to do it. And obviously I'm physically disabled, so I can't do that anymore. But it's just planning differently, right? Like sometimes I'll do a few of my social media posts in advance. I'll write it out or I'll ask community members to help me write it out if I'm tired. You know, we're so good at this cross disability support because there are even people in the disabled community who don't make their shit accessible and it drives me up the wall because they're like, well, I'm tired. And I'm like, I get it. I'm exhausted. You know, yeah, some days it, it means doing an hour to, to, you know, upload your video and make sure there's closed captionings and not just auto transcribe stuff because auto always creates mistakes and can never pick up on. They don't even know what OD is, which is hilarious because that's a very short word. So. <laughs> I do, you know, put in that extra love and effort because I don't give a crud if I don't get traction or if my post didn't track well, I'd I'd even turned off my like counts. Like I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. I just, I would rather share what I have to share and make it accessible for everyone than, and then it took me 10 years to get here because everyone's like, how did you market? How do you even get these clients? I don't know. I meeting people and loving people and just going back and forth with wanting to know what they're doing for work. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hear 10 years down the road. Oh my gosh. I didn't even realize like when I met Liz Jackson, it was like, Oh my gosh, that I didn't even know who Liz Jackson was when I met her. I know. And then all of a sudden I, I noticed later and after that job that I'm like, Oh, she's a big deal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like I didn't even know, you know? Yeah. 
I think most of that usually tends to happen in the sense where sometimes we're in the spaces and we meet people and, and we're lucky enough to meet somebody in a thing and we don't even realize who we're actually talking about. And sometimes that's the best way because then you're not, uh, you're not enamored by who they are. You're just talking to them as like creative <laughs> to creative or something like that versus being totally stifled by their celebrity or their access point that you're like, who am I to talk to this person? <laughs> you know, versus like just being able to, to do that. And so you're, you know, you're talking about how much time you're taking and putting in the extra effort, and it begs the question, right? Are are the tools of art and design set up to support creatives with disabilities? <laughs> They're getting there, and I feel like since the boom of it, as we're saying, becoming trending and becoming thing, you're seeing a lot more things coming out, which is great. Like you're seeing. I think Snapchat now has, you can type the text and then click the voice kind of like TikTok does. So it'll read out the text and like all this kind of stuff. Now, as far as design tools, I can't even speak to all of it because I, in the end of my disability, other than the fact that I need to be digital, the tech works for me. So I can't complain. I, I think it's going there, but then you look at Canva or Figma, Figma's starting to do some plugins and things like that. But that it's like, if you make a PDF, let's say, or try to make a PDF in Canva and export that, it is riddled with accessibility errors. Like you are never going to get a clean PDF out of it. You, you might as well just build the PDF right in Adobe Reader. You know, like you, you might as well just start from scratch. So there are some things I think in our current applications that aren't up to par yet. They're not helping you make making design with accessibility in mind easier. They're starting to, like you're seeing Illustrator now has uh, color blindness simulators. So you can kind of see how your colors are going to look across the board. They're starting to kind of implement more document accessibility in the other programs, not just InDesign, because I know not everybody uses InDesign or even uses Adobe for that fact, right? So it's back and forth. It's a slow process. And I think it's going to get there more in the future than it is now. Can you explain what a clean PDF means? Oh, okay. So everything's code, right? Everything we see on our screen is code that we're seeing as visual examples. So when you open up a PDF, there's a bunch, there's like tag structures and things like that. So let's say you have a two page document with a header one, a header two, and some paragraphs. If you don't tag that header one or that header two as a header, then the screen reader like won't be able to navigate through the page. So if there's no tags, or if you know you just scanned a document, it's all like a flat jpeg as a pdf no one with assistive tech is going to be able to read that because there's no i mean there's not even alt text for the Mm -hmm. image right so when you're building accessible pdfs which is an entire art in itself you have to like be mindful of the way you're styling even as simple as making a paragraph style and then using that paragraph style rather than highlighting the text and then using your top banner to style it it's little things like that that then when you export it like Adobe will know, oh, okay, that's a paragraph tag. That's a header tag. This is an image tag. And then someone with assistive tech can read the document and go through it. That's amazing. It's amazing that even things that you don't consider code-based, like these design programs, even though they are, right? But you think of web stuff as like code-based, right? Just because of, yeah, you know, <laughs> but like to be like, right, if you don't have the proper, if you don't use character styling or these styling versus this, and like you said, go up to the toolbar and do that, it's going to be read differently. Mm-hmm. Just blew my mind in the sense of <laughs> not even realizing that little thing leads to better accessibility. Absolutely. That's why you need disabled people in development. And I 
I love them because I am not a back-end developer. I am a front-end developer at best. I know my HTML, my CSS, and then everything else is see you later. I'm going to hire someone else to help me do it. (laughs) I agree with you on that. I'm a front person. I'm a a front-end person. Yeah. I can dig in the back if I need to like fix a little glitch or something and make sure there was like a a tag here or, you know, a less than sign or something is missing. But besides that, no. As design continues to evolve via its technology and thought processes, right? You mentioned, obviously, the idea of physical space, which unfortunately, you know, often has limitations for disabled individuals. What are you noticing is happening in the same thing, but in the digital space, right? Who are the biggest culprits? And honestly, who are the best advocates that are helping in in this other type of space? For me, I find the biggest, it's so hard to say because as people are trying and companies are trying, it's just the way our systems currently work online in digital spaces that are just not helping. Like half the time as ugly as 19 windows 98 was, you know, it was code wise. Ooh, beautiful. Now don't get me wrong. I still don't think that's accessible because there is visual accessibility things to consider, like, you know, size of your font or spacing layout, having some negative space in there, please. But as far as like the digital realm, these big companies that are just trying to like market on accessibility or try to do these quick fixes rather than really start from scratch. Like a lot of even the clients that come to me to get their website accessible are like, oh, I just used like, what platform should I even use? Or what should I even like go to? So I try to help them there. And for me, the the community members, like I said, higher priestess, having Gurma, the way we're trying to like, then it's, it's weird. It's like a back and forth of us trying to combat things that are launched without it even being considered. You know, when the first person launched Instagram, They weren't thinking about, is this clean for a screen reader to use? They're just trying to get traction and trying to get popular. And now you're seeing all of these big companies backpedal because as the WCAG, or I apparently say WCAG, and that's not right, which is the Web Accessibility Content Guides, whatever that acronym, it's like, as that's becoming more of a thing and and more compliance is going in government work, even you're seeing more of these websites now backing up or fixing their things or launching widgets to like fix their apps and and try to make it more accessible. And it's like, well, if you just built this from the start with the disabled people who were telling you how to do this, it would be so much easier. And I don't know if there's one culprit versus fixer answer for that, because it's kind of just like the way we look at technology in general and the way we kind of advance so fast that we're not even taking a break and a breath to say, did we even do this right? Mm-hmm. Did we even consider all the people here? Because like back in the day in school, a lot of this tech was for disabled people only. Like I was the first kid in my class to get a laptop because I got to type because it was easier and less fatiguing than writing. Or they tried to get me on dragon naturally speaking so that I could speak. And I'm still haunted by the command, scratch that. Because every time it would get an error, I'd have to say scratch that and it would delete a whole <laughs> sentence. But like a lot of this technology was for assistive tech and for adaptation. And then somewhere along the lines, as soon as it got to the public and just expanded, it's like we got left behind. And now we're having to combat all of these things that just aren't being built for us or not even being considered, but the change is happening. You know, you're seeing that shift. You're seeing new apps consider that and new people 
asking and hiring disabled people on their team to like get it going and get it started from the foundation or even consulting of like, Hey, am I doing this right? Or what have I thought of? So there's some good coming. (laughs) (laughs) It's so unfortunate. Like you mentioned, the idea that a lot of this stuff that we use comes from the ability to give access to, you know, people who didn't have access before. And then of course, once it becomes for the masses, then your accessibility goes away, right? Because it's no longer yeah. like you were almost a testing ground for this versus continuing to evolve. Like instead of being like, always oh, the alpha, right? Like, okay, you can always test <laughs> this. And as it moves on, we got to test a new thing. It's like, okay, you get left behind, right? Mm-hmm. Which does suck, but it is unfortunately true. And it's so much in so many spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Not just accessibility, but in, you know, racial equity and in, in everything, right? We, we, we like your culture, but we don't like your people, right? Like just, it's such yeah, a weird, exactly. such a weird human thing that once, <laughs> when, once we've learned from you or stolen from you, then we don't need you anymore. <laughs> yes, I know. And you know what? And it's, and then on the flip side, technology has given so much access to disabled people too. Like, you know, once we work past the tech issues, you see like so, like even now I'm, I'm getting fitted for a new chair for the first time in five years. And the process alone is so different than it was that I'm, I'm sitting in expecting it to be like eight months and yeah, probably can't get this. And they're like, oh no, we're going to give you eye level so you can move your chair up and down. And we're going to do this fabric so that it's breathable. And I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. We are in the future. Like it's just, so it's really cool to see. And, and as sometimes as backwards as it is, sometimes, sometimes it goes forwards in ways we can't even imagine. And it's wild. Like Mm -hmm. Aubrey Lee's creating tech with Google that, so that they could pick up on text better for people who maybe aren't so audible or can't speak like, cause like maybe their jaws are a little more stiff so they can't speak as well as they used to. And like, they're creating, you know, technology where you can drive your chair with your freaking eyeballs. Like it's just, it's so cool wow. to do. So there is a cool side to tech that disabled people get to see and get to use. So that yeah. sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Doing some research on your website, right? There are three areas that I noticed, right? Consulting, updating, and new work. And your new work is touted as obviously we've been talking about accessibility from the start. You just mentioned a question that I was going to follow up with, right? The idea of including disability, disabled persons in the project earlier, right? But besides that, which is obviously just having the right people in the room to even just ask the right questions, how can more designers start including accessibility in their practices from the start? Oh gosh. Yes. So many ways. Like there are so many courses out there too, and free resources, even like a lot of what I learned were either taken from the web content accessibility guidelines or ally the A11Y. Like there's so many resources. Like there's, we have so much information at our fingertips that it's almost like we can learn something today, you know, like, so even as simple as running your logo through a colorblindness simulator, you know, because there's a compliance rule that logos don't have to be accessible for contrast ratio. And I'm like, why? Like, why? Because that person doesn't want to see the logo. Like, yeah, you know, building brand guides that, you know, explain those accessibility things. Like I even put in, I'll put in a whole contrast accessibility page. So it'll show every swatch 
let's say the, the client has four colors, right? So I'll even take those colors and give them the matching colors to go with it. So it's like, if you're using this as a background color, you can only use these colors with it. And then right from the start, that, and then a social media marketer can look at that and know, oh, okay, I have to pair these colors together so it's accessible. And then they already know. Mm-hmm. I agreed. And I mean, that was that last part, right? Just follow more designed or disabled people, design disabled people. Like it's such an easy thing because they're going to be doing the practices that you should be using more often. <laughs> like, so you'll exactly. learn by just, like you said, absorbing. I think people need to just be, that's a comfort zone thing. And the more we can not follow the same people that we always do or the same types of people, right? To me, it's like, you're a creative, right? Designers who are creative, who doesn't matter if they're disability first, this first, African-American, black, Latino, right? It's just creatives follow creatives. I want to follow because it's good stuff, right? So to me, it's like almost at the democratizing idea, like good stuff is good stuff regardless of where it comes from, exactly. right? And to me, it starts from there. And when you respect what people are doing and they just happen to be, quote unquote, doing things a little differently because of wherever they're coming from, learn from that. Right. Right. Like I said, that's why I'm listening to, you know, you, Jen White and other people who are doing it and going, okay, this is how they're asking to be respected and talked to if you're talking about them. Right. They're showing you Mm -hmm. how they do it. So respect that fact. And in kind, that's how you want to address them, talk about them when you're mentioning them, you know, so you're learning from those spaces. Right. It's not that hard to do. It's actually a lot (laughs) harder to go against the grain. Than it is to just right? follow it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's as everything in the world, like nobody's going to agree on everything, right? Like there's way too many of us on this planet to have one cohesive view of something. Even in the disabled community, we get into arguments and things like that, or some different perspectives or some different things. So like at the end of the day, like just don't be an asshole, right? Like just take the time to follow someone, learn something new. Like one of my design philosophies anyway, in general is like, if I get to a point in my career where I'm like, eh, I don't need to learn anything. You need to do it this way. Or like, you know, there's nothing new that I can learn that I, sh- I guess I should retire because I'm not going to understand what's new and what's adaptive. Like, you know, so the same thing applies to everything else. We can always learn from someone else, even if it's not a design thing, you know, it can come from anywhere. I agree with you so much. I, I mean, literally on that if I have nothing else to learn, then I'm, I shouldn't be in this space anymore. There's nothing wrong with that. If I, but if I feel that I'm, I'm already done with learning, then why am I still here? I'm going to move on to do something else, right? Because I, exactly. I, I agree, you know, like if that's the feeling, then I can't give anything more to this. I, you know, I have this air of confidence that I know everything, which is obviously always fake. But, you know, if you do, <laughs> then you shouldn't be in this space anymore. I mean, when I think when I read that in one of your articles, I was kind of like, Yes, it's exactly, I mean, exactly what I've said <laughs> before. So that's awesome. And don't get me wrong. I'm still stubborn. I'll still be stubborn. I'll, I'll hundred percent be stubborn in my design work, but you know, I'm stubborn because I'm a Taurus. So it's, it's just built in me. So I gotta be stubborn. <laughs> so look at that. We agree on multiple I think things. Mine, <laughs> I think mine comes just from that, uh, that, uh, wanting to my self-advocacy can sometimes also be just, ah, I just don't like the authority. Like you tell me to do this. I'm going to go do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Oh I get that. That's a that's a good stubborn thing. So let me ask you this: Is it possible to design for all? And if so, is it tactic driven, or is the process flexible? 
Ooh, okay. Well, for me, designing for all is being flexible. I hold like there, and there are some disabled designers who will probably disagree with me on this. And that's fine. But a hundred percent accessibility is a myth. Everything is contextual and it depends on the situation. So all you can do is do the best you can do at the time and try to encompass as many people as you can for that specific project. Like start small because it's easier that way too. And you're going to solve more problems that way than because like it can feel overwhelming, right? When it's like, ah, oh, designing for everyone. But for me, it's as simple as we're designing for the people that exist in this world. Like the last time I checked, Black disabled people exist. You know, like all these people exist. So all I'm trying to do is just take what I see from the world and what I've had the honor of connecting with in this world and put it into my work. So as far as like the technical accessibilities, even people who are saying, oh, this is 100% compliant, half the time I disagree with some of their design choices. I think it could have been done differently or Mm -hmm. I think it could have been approached from a different perspective. But that doesn't mean like that, oh, it's all or, because I don't like that all or nothing mentality. To me, it's flexible. I might be working with a mostly deaf community who might need specific things that maybe counteract with something that someone else needs in the community. Like there are cross disability issues sometimes. And sometimes you just have to do the best you can. And that comes with having those hard conversations and figuring it out with who's in this space, you know, like for webinars, maybe you won't have a disabled person in a webinar. Maybe you will have plenty. So if you give them the option to say what their access needs are, then you can accommodate for the people you know are in your space and start there. It doesn't have to be everyone. It's just got to actually reflect the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Before we start to end this, talk to me about the blog you did with your sister called The Disabled Life. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I think we're going to end up switching into some audio-based thing soon because she's like a student in psychology right now. So, and I'm doing all this design work. So none of us have the time to illustrate anymore, but that really just came from a fun space because we've always been just, I want to say we've just been jerks. It's fun. You know, like we just, we always roast people. We, we had an idea for maybe putting it together in a collection and, and we wanted to literally say thank you to all those awkward non-disabled people who made our jokes a reality by being awkward in front of us, you know, because without that, we wouldn't have half the laughs we had. So we just wanted to just draw things from just shit we go through, the funny things people have said, and just finding a laugh in it all. Because For me, it's like no different than this is my normal. And I don't like the word normal because normal doesn't exist. Everyone's different. Everyone. But at the same time, we're all the same too. And just because my experiences in my life happen to be from a disability perspective, and so many people are like, oh my God, like I couldn't imagine not being able to walk. And I'm like, I can't imagine walking. It sounds exhausting. You people have to put one foot in front of the other all the time just to get from point A to B. Like, who's winning here? I think I have it figured out because I don't have to walk around everywhere. But like, you know what I mean? So it's just, we have a dark sense of humor too, in that sense, or not a dark sense of humor, sorry. We have like a, we do have a morbid sense of humor and that comes with like (laughs) life expectancy and different things like that. So it just, we've, our whole family's always been that way. And it was a great way to break the ice when we were younger. And it's also just been a great way to just laugh at some of the stuff that happens in life. Cause I find it fat. Like kids are my favorite. They always like say the coolest stuff. Cause they're not afraid either. Right. They don't have that social, like they think so like my little cousin who I, maybe I, you know, they'll walk up and be like, why can't you walk? And I'm like, cause I didn't eat my broccoli. And then he's like, shit, I'm going to eat my broccoli now. You know, like, so <laughs> 
And I love it. I love those because they're curious. And right. that's the best thing I think to have is to be curious over then being afraid to like, or being like, I don't know. So we just found a way to put that together and to just laugh about it together online. And apparently it got traction because we had no, no intention of it going anywhere. We're, this is our outlet. Even now people are like, what are you going to do with this space? We're like, nothing. If something else funny comes up, we'll probably roast them. Like, that's it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's so great space. to be able to like do something where the intention is just to explore a lot of the different things versus like having to do something like, Oh, what, you know, and the fact that you're able to just look at it and be like, we were just trying to vent, trying to acknowledge, trying to just do these and express our morbid, you know, comedic (laughs) abilities and and how we can talk about the world. Because usually the, the things that I've noticed when you're doing it from that space is when it will get traction because people can see the authenticity in it because it's not trying to do it for any other purpose than just trying to do it. Exactly. I mean, you know, many people like would come, I've had disabled people like roast us about the club one because we were joking about why we hate the club. And they're like, you're just not doing it right. And it's like, dude, you can go to the club. I don't care. That's that's amazing. I I hate it. I don't want to stare at butts all day. But if I do, (laughs) I'll go to the club. Like, you know? (laughs) But yeah, I know. It was was a fun outlet. All right. So yeah, so there's a potential that it can, it can evolve into this audio format, which I think would be a great uh, thing. Right? I just I have some already on the on the records. And we just go on thought processes, right? It's basically the jokes we come up with because we share a room. So it's just the jokes we come up with at two in the morning, you know, and it's like, then you wake up the next morning and you're like, that probably wasn't funny, but we were really just dying laughing at night, right? <laughs> that's where it all comes from. <laughs> that sounds actually really funny because i can understand that that moment of having those funny conversations with somebody and then realizing like i have no idea what i was talking about at two in the morning (laughs) oh man so as we start to end up stuff let me ask you some final questions as a designer what is something new you would like to explore creative wise so i kind of want to explore more about maximalism and how that can relate to digital accessibility as well we're often told that like you know, the grid system and the Eurocentric way of designing is the most accessible too. And a lot of what I've learned from like Oroco Creative and even where the black designers do their amazing like workshops and just talks and chats are that like, no, I think you can do accessibility and not have to follow this like colonized way of designing. So it's it's just been something I'm really curious about and just, and to kind of play with more in my own accessibility work and how I treat accessibility as an art form, as well as a technical accessibility for everyone. Hmm. I like that. I like this idea of maximalism. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a great approach. And to also, I guess, say that we should be in that space too, you know, like not just, right. Know, we should be yeah, like don't limit it to the type of designer, the type of creative, anybody should be in that space. And, and what does it mean to be in that space? So as a consultant, what shifts are you seeing or how should the industry shift in the next five years? Ooh, okay, good question. Because really consultancy just started as my retirement plan. Yeah, so if I get too tired to design, I can then consult. But 
for me, what I'm seeing a lot of is I am seeing a lot of the basics are really getting out there, which is good. I'm seeing a lot more designers consider font sizes. I'm seeing a lot more of them. Like I've even seen clients now start to like add image descriptions because they saw it from my post. That always makes me excited. But as far as like an industry where we need to go in five years is A, we need to drop the gatekeeping. All right. No more of this hierarchy of only a director can do this and veto this design and that design. I feel like if we want to make a more accessible environment now where I want to get into is how we can make our environments as accessible as our design process. Because it's not just more about the end product. That's great. We can all learn the contrast. We can all learn all of those design tools, but we need more classes in schools so that younger like and even newer designers, because they're not necessarily young, they might just be starting out, can actually learn the basics from the start and implement it into their design work. And then I want like agency spaces and design spaces and corporate design spaces to adapt a more accessible and good life balance, even just for their designers. And I feel like that's where we need to go in order to a combat the technology that, you know, we're talking about too, and and B just actually be able to get better designs out there from the foundations. We can't do it if we're used to a certain way of working or only one way of doing things. Yay. (laughs) That's just, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's nothing I should add to that. What advice would you give a younger Jess entering the industry today? Ooh, well, I mean, the biggest thing was be don't worry about your life expectancy because apparently you're going to live a while. That was a whirlwind in itself. But probably, yeah, just calm down and you're going to be floored by the amount of things you're going to do. Because honestly, I'm still that young designer that's like, wait, what do you mean Google messaged me for something? Or what do you mean I'm talking to Jan White Johnson right now? Like, oh, that's still, and, and don't lose that sentiment. Don't lose that awe and just keep doing what you're doing because you're on to something. And just maybe take a little more breaks because I'm still trying to tell myself that. <laughs> I'm not practicing what I preach in the whole life balance thing right now. And do we do ever... That. No, we never do, you know, do do, do as I say, not as I do. Right. Not as I do. Exactly. My one colleague, Michael literally said, there's no such thing as a design emergency. He's like, you know, you're not going to see an ambulance come down because the logo wasn't finished by tomorrow. And I was like, that is so true. Like I need to rest. (laughs) We all do. Rest needs to be part of our process. Yes, it really does. And so lastly, I'm starting this new ending to my show i'm calling it pay it forward now that you've been on the show who do you think i should have on and what one question about their process should i ask them oh my gosh okay give me a second because i want to make sure i'm thinking about this (laughs) you take as much time as you need okay so jamal he is in Potsdam, berlin germany and he's a product design student and he does renderings like disability studies all of these things so i would love for you to have them and say where he would like to see product design go in the future for accessibility. All right. There you go. <laughs> Got to look them up now. Yes. They're on my disabled made content list. So they're there. <laughs> okay. All right. Good to know. Good to know. And then of course, I know you're not taking clients anymore for 2023, <laughs> but what else is, is up next for Jess? And where can oh our listeners gosh. find out about you and the things you're do- doing and the future and everything just od related all right well i'm trying i'm trying to be better on social media because my colleague Kay 
Tran is actually someone else you should check out. So Kay's telling me I should get on LinkedIn and stuff. So I'm trying to do that. So you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn, all od.jessica because I tried to stay consistent. So yeah, I'm very fortunate to be booked out this year, which is wonderful. And that's that is me also trying to just enjoy life a bit more this year too. Cause you know, we've been locked in for a while and it's good to get out there again and trying to slowly find that work-life balance. And I am excited because I'm, I'm doing two things that I signed NDAs for. And that just makes me sound so fancy. Like, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't talk about this. I'm just so, just so wild. But those two opportunities are really big. And I hope you might learn more about it in uh, maybe six or seven months from now. I'm hoping. So you have to follow me on socials to get the scoop on those things. Cause I don't, I can't say it now, but I am excited that this year I get to really put a lot of my energy into continuing with the disability philanthropy forum there. I'm like, do most of their brand work. And I have a little team we have together for like accessible design and things like that and doing all their documents and their things. So I'm going to be really excited to explore with them more this year and to be able to like give them more of my time and energy because anything I get to do that I get to work with like disabled led organizations or people or connections and businesses, like that's my fun. That's the stuff I'm more looking forward to in these next hopefully few years too, is to continue just with and for, you know, working together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And it sounds, I mean, it sounds like what you're doing, obviously, that you really can't talk about it. So we can't talk about it. But <laughs> it I sounds know, right? like those things and what's about to come up is just the ability for the industry to catch up to you and other people like you who are doing the amazing work in this space and really trying to advocate for thinking about disability in the beginning, thinking about accessibility in the beginning to try to design for as many people knowing that there is no 100%, but trying to at least strive to that, you know, is better than never <laughs> trying to attempt Never it, again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It should take the pressure off. It's not meant to be a scary thing. It's meant to be a load off your back. So you can be like, it's okay. We are human. I've messed up. Trust me. You know how many times I've gone in and been like, oh, that didn't work. Let me go back and fix that. You know? So Right. Well, we learn we learn from our mistakes. We learn from our failures. We figure out where to where to move next. And I thank you for for kind of just really honestly shedding a light on some of the things that maybe I or people tend not to talk about because there's a like you mentioned, a fear of of not knowing. So you just don't even ask versus uh if you ask the right people who are willing to help you along, they're they're going to bring you along with them versus like calling you out for making the mistake. And I think we as designers need to just do the work as well and not be so inhibited or or think that it's somebody else's job to do all this type of work. We can start and then there's going to be things that we don't understand and then we'll go to the experts. <laughs> but <laughs> but we should definitely start from scratch and 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 thinking about how do we need to be more inclusive in the way we we design because once again that idea of a clean PDF just blew my mind and that's something that regular <laughs> designers quote unquote deal with all the time and probably have no idea that it's not made, you know, the quote unquote right way. So I promise you accessible design is just nice, good, and like, it'll make you a better designer. It really will. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And I I thank you for just kind of letting us hear that. 
letting us know that that's a thing that we can be a part of. So once again, Jess, I want to thank you so much for your flexibility. Hope the weather is not too bad in Canada. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm honored and I'm so glad I got to have this chat with you. It was so much fun. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. I know. And maybe that's the Canadian thank you in me all the time, right? Like that. Oh. But no, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> Take care until next time. This has been Works in Process. Wow. What a great convo with Jess. I want to thank her so much for sharing her perspective and efficacy for accessibility from the start. I learned so much that little small things can make a difference and that we need to practice and weave it into my methodologies. I hope you'll look up the people she mentioned in the episode via the links in your podcast platform. The Works and Process podcast is created by me, George Garastegui Jr., and the content and transcriptions have been reviewed by Or Schifflinger, and this episode has been edited and produced by RJ Basilio. You can find the Works and Process podcast on all media platforms such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and more. And if you like the episode, come on, feel free to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And of course, if you're feeling extra generous, write us a review. It really helps. And it's so easy. Just subscribe on the podcast platform you're listening to right now. Also, follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to stay up to date on the new releases of every episode. I appreciate you taking the journey with me, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Until next time, remember your work is never final. It's always a works in process. Mm-hmm.